0: Uh, remembrance this gift of God unto us a child is born unto us a son is given now open your Bibles if you don't have them open in Isaiah 9 1 and I want to begin this way because this is how this begins in verse number one uh, first part of this uh, with what God offers us he promises us a gift of a child and a gift of a son but he offers this by way of a message of hope. And this is a prophetic word given to us, which simply means that God is speaking to a people and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, this is my plan. This is what's going to go on. I'm going to give you something. And in, and in this statement, he gives them a word or a, a declaration, a promise, which in itself means hope or is hope. Oh, the old saying we we have often heard and there is light at the end of the tunnel. And most of us are pretty familiar with that. That's dark in the immediate circumstances. But at the end of the tunnel, there's, there's a light, there's a way out. And so God is giving to the nation of Israel a word, a promise of hope. And we come to understand this, not just a message to Israel, but a message to all mankind. Look what he says in verse number 9. 9. <clears throat> Beginning in verse number 1, chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought in contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. And later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, if you look at the chapter before that and why this is so special, at least to the first readers of this, the recipients of this word of God, is because they are left in darkness. Um, Turn back, if you will, to verse 22 of chapter number 8. Children of Israel had sinned against God, and God will will give them the consequences of their sin. He will bring in a nation and they will conquer them. They will throw them, carry them off into captivity. He will judge the nation of Israel. They have, they have worshipped and went to necromancers and witchcraft and idols instead of turning to God for help. And that's how they, they sought to, to fix the problem when they were in trouble. Sounds a lot like our modern day solution, isn't it? Uh, what do you do when you're in trouble? When you're in, in in trouble and you can't do anything about it, we turn to the means of the world in many ways. It's humanity is, is good at that. Spiritualism to some degree. But the nation of Israel, they had God. They had a history with God who had delivered them out of Egypt and, and did all these marvelous things. So instead of turning to the living God, uh, they turned to all these, these things. You see that mentioned earlier on. <clears throat> And verse number 19, you inquire mediums and necromancers and chirp and mutter and should not people inquire of their God, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And so he gives this conclusion, verse 22, It's what I'm aiming to get to. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That is a solemn word to hear And yet in this, God speaks once more. Uh, And I know in our chapter headings, we have another chapter. It's almost like a different subject, right? We're just kind of going on. Uh, But really, it should be in close relationship that God did speak definitely and surely and rightly. God does everything right. Uh, Sometimes it's hard for us to square with that, not it, isn't it? We're like, is that really right? Is that really good? Is that really the way things should be? But the God is righteous and holy and all that he does is right and holy according to his character and nature. And yet even in this right statement, in the situation Israel finds himself, he speaks yet once more, uh, showing that what was going to take place, as bad as it was, is not the final word. It reminds us back in the Garden of Adam, uh, back in the Garden of Eve, when He tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And then Adam eats of it. And and all of that takes on God could have done away with them. And there was a weighty consequence of Adam's sin and rebellion, wasn't there? And yet God spoke continually after he brought about a curse on the man, a curse upon the woman. (coughs) What does he do in chapter 3, verse 15? He gives a promise. That I will curse the serpent and I will crush his head uh, through the seed of this woman. And so in the midst of bleakness, in the midst of darkness, there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. There is hope that, that mankind does not, does not have to, to face abandonment, not totally, because God has spoken. That's what he's doing here in this prophetic word. And you see that all through the prophets. As God is judging the nation of Israel, judging sin among the nations, uh, uh, collectively as he does this in the midst of that, he gives the hope. And the hope is wrapped up around the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice, he says, those who were in gloom, uh, those who have felt the anguish and the, and the weight of, of sin, he gives a promise in this declaration that there will be light and, and, and the gloom will be lifted. And what was former a place of contempt will be a place where glory is revealed. This was fulfilled when Jesus began to preach his ministry. And and what is it a word of ultimately? What is this hope meant to do for us? Well, I think it's reminding the nation of Israel as it reminds us that God has not abandoned her, and God has not abandoned mankind. Now, by all rights, he should. We have sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. But here, this declaration, after talking about darkness and judgment, he says, light will come. There will be relief. In fact, it will be all wrapped up in this gift that I'm giving you in this child, in this son. There's hope. And of course, we know when Jesus was born and to the as Mary was pregnant with Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit, the angel tells Joseph, because he's like, it just doesn't happen every day. That's right. It doesn't happen every day. And he doesn't know what to do. And the angel says, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is what? It is God with us, isn't it? Now, out of all the statements you can make in the Bible, once you know beginning of Genesis and you see all the turmoil through the Old Testament and, and even the the gross rebellion all the way through the Book of Revelation, isn't that one of the most remarkable statements you can make in relationship between God and man? I mean, we could rightly understand God created us, God lording over us, God ruling us, God against us, God judging us, God in contrast or, or, or different than us. We understand all those things because all those things are true in some way or another. Some of them may be distorted to some degree, but isn't it remarkable when you come to a place like this, God is speaking, I'm giving you my son and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us, is not just left us to ourselves and our own devices. You know, sometimes we could say that God says this because, well, He ought to say this because we're pretty awesome people. Of course, God is with us. I'm awesome, I'm attractive, I'm accomplished. And by attractive, I don't mean I'm, I'm handsome or, or you're handsome. All, you, you, nice looking people. You know, you get that. I mean attractive in the sense of moral appeal. So he's not speaking to the nation of Israel in that way, just the same as he doesn't speak to God with us based upon that foundation. Not on our attractiveness, not on our, what we deserve or the reward of all that we ought to be. In fact, what we find is uh, remarkably that God speaks this out of His own desire to show grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. In some ways, we, by human nature, uh, we we like we're attracted to the thought of God helps those who help themselves. And in some ways, there's something it does for our self-esteem. We're not totally too far gone. We're not completely left helpless. In fact, a great deal of people kind of live in this line that God is united to us because there is something in us uh, of greater value or worth or uh, there's something which, which attracts God in that way. We... We, we feel like the favor of God or the goodness of God towards us is something that we earn or something that we've achieved, like, like some, for some of you kids, like a level in a video game. You've accomplished that end, so you get the next level. You get it, you know, so we kind of live like that. And how many people have gone on and said, well, you know, when you talk about heaven and standing before God, they've told us, well, I'm just thinking my good will outweigh the bad. I'm a pretty good person. And isn't that really behind that theology? I've reached a few levels and so I've leveled up and I kind of got out of uh, the, the, the run that I'm in. And so naturally we think God is united to us by what we offer or by what we do. So if we take God with us in that regard, it would be very troublesome because the Bible will go on and tell us that's just not really the way it is. In fact, it tells us that we have all sinned against God and fallen short of his glory. The Bible speaks differently as it speaks God with us. It's a statement about God's action in grace, his action in grace. I think that's important because what we look at when we think about Christmas and your nativity story is a historical event that actually occurred. I know most of you have been in church long enough to where you've probably worked out the debate, is the Bible trustworthy or is it really happened the way it is? Can you handle the idea of a virgin birth and angels and all that stuff like that? And to me, I believe the Bible is, and the events happened the way it said it did. Because if I can't trust it there, then I can't trust it anywhere else. And out of the 2,000 years that the Bible has been under scrutiny and observation from skeptics and critics from all sorts, they have still failed to render it, render it uh, untrustworthy. To say it another way, I believe this is God's inspired, infallible word. What Israel received in Isaiah 9 was a promise of something that would take place. And what I'm saying to you this morning, what we look at when we think of Christmas morning or Jesus' birth, is an actual, literal action of God, an event that took place in history, time, and space. So when we point to God's goodness with us, we're not pointing to a philosophical argument or an argument about, you know, this might have happened and it's kind of like this sort of fuzzy. We're saying, no, look literally at what God did. He broke into our world by sending his son born of a virgin in a manger. It was an action of God. God's actions speak just as loudly and as definite as his words. Never that reminds us because there's many words that He's spoken to us that have yet to be fulfilled. So if He's fulfilled the other action in sending His Son and dying on a cross, then make no mistake, then that which is awaiting will be sure and it's trustworthy. So it is an action of God. God with us. This Emmanuel is an action of God. It's a hope in, in, in an act that God has given to us. But it's also... An action that is a display of God's grace. God with us. Not because of the things that we offer and pride, but out of his love and desire. You, You often heard grace being defined as unmerited favor. I think that's a great way of seeing it. You see a people who are suffering under the weight of consequences in Isaiah 8, and then you begin number 9, and what takes place? What's the change? Well, it's God breaking into that situation that changes, that takes place. Isn't that the same thing in our life, in your life, that you've come to faith in Christ and you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Isn't it because of God's grace? Breaking into your world, into your darkness, into the power of the gospel, and faith in that gospel that you are now a child of God? The motivation, the whole act of God in our hope is, is seen in His grace, His goodwill towards us. That it give you some kind of comfort. That He has not abandoned you and left to, you to your own devices, but yet He has come to you in your mess, the world you live in, to offer you hope, to redeem you, to save you. Uh, Here in his love, we hear said, and we talked about that last week, didn't we? Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Why did he love us? Because God is love. The overflow of his heart, his love for his son, his love for his creation. Well, I think, Christian, this morning, that's a great encouragement to you and to me. As we think about Christmas and we think about the nativity story and all the things that we could get wrapped up, there's at least encouragement in the fact that God has not abandoned us. God has not left us. And there are times we go through dark trials. There's time where things are difficult and heavy, but but God says even in those times, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He has not abandoned us. And where's the assurance of that? Isn't it the fact that he made good on his promise to send Christ into the world? Isn't it good on his promise to those who call upon him should be saved? Isn't it a reminder that this is where our strength is. This is where our resolve is for the Christian. That God has given us hope and encouragement. That we are not alone. That he has come to us. God with us. And, and I don't know. Maybe it was a couple of years ago. I was so uh, thoughtful on that. I, I grew up in a church. The name of it was Emmanuel, or is Emmanuel, Baptist Church, Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. Um, and I, I, when I was a kid, I thought it was so clever because I, I realized that a Christmas story, that meant God with us. So anytime you, you heard somebody say, Emmanuel, my mind would go, well, that means God with it." I know the meaning of that word, you know. So that's kind of a cool thing when you're a kid to, to know stuff, the insider stuff. And a couple of years ago, I was just so struck by that because when you sense the grace of God and you think about that statement, God with us, it's almost scandalous because it ought to say God against us. yet it doesn't. God with us. No wonder the angels can come and say uh, this is God's goodwill towards mankind as they speak to the shepherds. Secondly, notice, not this gift of hope and light, and those who are in Naphtali and and, and made the way to the sea beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And I guess the question to you this morning, has the light of the gospel, light of the goodness of God shown in your life? Have you come to see Christ for who he is? more than just a a fancy story and little figurines that we have decorated, but but as a a gift of hope of life to the world. Well, not only do we have that gift of hope, we have a gift of joy. Notice, he says in verse number three, you have multiplied the nation. This is a nation that had been ripped apart. Many murdered and scattered abroad as the Assyrians came in and and carried the nation off. And he says you, you have not left it. You will multiply it. It will expand under your work. And you have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isn't it amazing that every person you encounter. In the, in the birth narrative of Jesus. Is, is either filled with joy or rejoicing. I mean, John the Baptist's parents, Mary, she sing, breaks out into song. Uh, you have the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, over and over. you And at, at, at some news of God's visiting his people, the news of the birth of the Messiah, there is great joy. In fact, one of the most notable occurrences, probably doesn't occur to you, is the encounter with, uh, with Mary. Elizabeth, you know the story. Right? Mary comes in. And then she greets Elizabeth, and Elizabeth just breaks out in praise. She breaks out in song. It's kind of like a musical, isn't it? Uh, She breaks out in song, and she says, The baby in my womb, John the Baptist, for he is born, is already rejoicing, praising God at the voice of Mary. They bring great joy. That's what he promises here in verse number three, isn't it? An increase of joy. I like joy, don't you? I like an increase of joy. I mean, I like to be happy, but I like to be really happy. And I think you see that here given to us. Notice he gives us two examples to try to wrap our arms around this this morning. One is probably familiar to us. And to some degree over this holiday <coughs> celebration, maybe for you and your family and the other, well, maybe a little more far removed. The first is it's a joy like the day of harvest. Now, we don't have feast days in the sense of uh, we don't plant anything and sow anything. Some of you do. Some of you have a green thumb. I don't. Uh, but, you know, I don't hardly go into the grocery store and rejoice because they got uh, broccoli or carrots or any of those things. Like, that. I just take for granted every part of the year that it's going to be laying there as I walk by them, you know. So um, we, we miss some of that kind of language. But you think about a culture that didn't have a, a Charlie Johns or Walmart or whatever. I mean, the harvest was a big deal the toil and the labor that went in to, to surviving. I mean, these people were surviving for their life. It was seen as a, a time of, of prosperity. And he's saying this joy that God will give the nation that is giving really to all mankind through this son given will be like at the end of work. When all of your labor and all of your planning and all the harvest has come in and the barns are full, then what do you do? You call all your friends together, or the community comes together, and they, they celebrate, they have a, a potluck dinner, right? or a pot blessing, whatever, wherever what denomination you're in. And they celebrate. They celebrate because God has been good and God has blessed them and, and He has prospered the work of their hands. He said there's joy in that kind of celebration. Some of you may remember that when you were a child and you went to those family reunions where you got to play with all your cousins. You only saw them once or twice a year and you had a great time, got in trouble. Somebody got a black eye. and, and But it was a time of celebration. Your favorite aunt brought meatloaf and you loved it, whatever. That, that's more of my story, but you got your own. Joy is a time of harvest. One of my first jobs was working at Hardee's. Uh, I don't know if I may have been 15. I know up here you can work when you're 10. uh, But as 15, you had to get a job and your parents had to sign for you and all that. So I I was working at Hardee's and I remember my first paycheck. I got these 20 bucks, $24, whatever it was. I was so excited. The first thing I did, I went out and bought a the biggest family pack of chicken legs I could buy. And I brought them home to my mama and I said, here, let's celebrate. And that was joyful because me and her both love chicken legs. Fried chicken, you know. That's more of a Southern thing, but you get it, I guess. And he's saying, don't you see the joy that's found in Christ? Is, is that joy of that celebration, that end, that reward of... of, of harvest that's the way it is In knowing christ we find the psalmist reminds us that our cup runs over Uh, and secondly he speaks this day of spoil notice again in verse number three as joy with the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil now we don't know much about that do we we don't go do that Some of you may feel that way when you deer hunt and you go divide the spoil or something like that. But but you imagine at the end of battle uh, that... The moment where victory has been secured and and, and all the all that 's left over the the stuff that 's scattered throughout the fields the gold and the and the food and all those things that 's your reward that 's your trophy for for all that labor and battle that victory brought, brings about a a kind of resolve or or kind of rejoicing and he said it will be like that, and some of you older uh, men here were basketball champions at one time in your life and s- many moons ago i guess but anyway and you remember winning that state championship and what'd you do you cut down the net and because of that was your trophy You'd, all that battle for that net That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Now you think about it. But it wasn't at that point. And he's saying, don't you see that this is what it'll be like when we come to see what God has done for us in Christ. Not a victory we've won, but a victory we share in. There'll be joy, overflowing joy. Well, I just want to remind you what the Bible says, that in his presence, in the presence of God, there is joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength, isn't it? There's a joy this morning to be had in communion and fellowship with God. Uh, Moses, for him, it was, it was as that, that radiant face, as his face was, was being illuminated by the very presence and glory of God. reminds us of the joy, really, of the Christian who has been walking with their Master and with their Lord. There's joy walking in fellowship and communion with God. There's also joy, and I think it's mentioned here, joy in the hope of deliverance and salvation that God offers us. Notice verse number 4 and 5. He says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and turmoil, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, we don't, let's be honest, you have to think about that because it doesn't do much for you. You don't know what garments rolled in blood and and all this other stuff's about, do we? We know, experience that in America. We see some of that in, in the foreign world as if we read news. And, and what, what Isaiah is prophesying is when when God comes, when Christ comes, this, this child that is born, this son that is given, he will bring with him a deliverance. Deliverance. In fact, I think the psalmist is right in reminding us to rejoice in this deliverance, in the deliverance of our soul in Psalms 40, where he says, He drew me up from a pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog, he set my feet upon a rock, and making my steps secure, he put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise of our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Have you experienced the joy of God's deliverance? Amen. That song that he puts in your heart. And verse 9, he goes on and says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I'm just encouraged you to read that whole psalm. Beautiful psalm that God has given to us to sing. is speaking of deliverance. The angel tells Joseph again in Matthew... Matthew's account that he will come and he will save his people, not from Rome, although that would be cool and that's kind of what they were expecting, but the Messiah would come and he would save their people from their sin. And that is what took place in his first coming. That's why we celebrate Christmas the way we do, because it isn't just about a baby being born. It's about a warrior, a humble king, a, 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 a one who would come and bring deliverance through his death and resurrection. While we may have some sentiment to the uh, thoughts and feelings to the manger, really the significance of Christ is found in the battle of the victory he's won for us. That's the significance of why he came. Not to give us a pattern to live by, although that's good and helpful. Not just to experience what roasted lamb is like, although I'm sure that's good. We're actually going to have some uh, tomorrow for the first time. Anyway, part of one. He didn't come here just necessarily to know what it's like to walk everywhere he went. I think most of us, we read this story, if we were picking a time to come, we would come more now where you have cars and stuff like that. You can kind of get around and do more. But it didn't come for those reasons. He came to bring deliverance, to bring salvation to a people who were in bondage. In bondage to sin and death. And he came to, to bring a nation, not just to the Jews, but to the nation, to the ends of the earth, that salvation is possible. Deliverance is had. Because sin was not just a New Testament or Jewish problem. You know that. I mean, I think we all know that. Sin is not just a problem out there in society with a collective group of people that would be all right if they were by themselves in the woods. And some of you like to be in the woods by yourself. What do you realize? You take yourself with you, don't you? Sin is even there it 's like one of those lurking things because it's it 's the ailment that 's among all of us, and yet this humble warrior comes to bring that kind of deliverance uh, and that 's what we experience joy through his work of delivering us but there 's also a future joy that we see. I think verse number five alludes to that that the trampling warrior in battle and all the garments rolled up in blood will be burned in the fire, you know. Isaiah promises earlier on in chapter number 2. Turn back there with me. <clears throat> Isaiah 2. Very beautiful uh, passage of Scripture. Good to, to remind ourselves of. We'll just pick up in verse number 1. The word of the Lord, the son of Amos, Saul, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It should come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the height highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say come let us go to the mountain of the Lord to the house of God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his path for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and shall now notice this next part tell me if this just doesn't seem odd they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. One day, the infantrymen and the general, the navy men, all of them will put down their, their, their arms and because there will be no more war. The Bible tells us that as we wait at the return of the Lord, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and surely we see that going on around us uh, as the world is really in conflict. Uh, We're in the midst of seeing several wars and we're kind of on the outside of that being hit continually from the overflow of that reality. But one day we will be as what Tolkien said. I love this quote from him. I'll share it with you. The birth... The death and resurrection of Jesus means that one day everything sad will come untrue. Isn't that what heaven is? That every wrong will be righted. Every violence and distortion of God's creation will be put right. That is an amazing thought. And that is a deep longing for the saints, isn't it? That's what heaven is. That's what we long for. Well, not only do we see the joy that God gives to us in this gift of His Son, we see it is really the gift of Himself. Notice again Isaiah 9. Verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon His shoulders and His name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord will do this. What has God given to us? He's given us his only begotten son. In one sense, we see a child born just like every child that uh, that is born in our church, just like you were born in a natural working as the Holy Spirit hovered over the womb of Mary, creating life in that uh, young girl's womb. And yet that child grew in the womb naturally like every other child. He walked like us. He grew up like us in many ways. But we're reminded that it was not only a child born, but a son given who was much unlike us. I think that scene, really in this, this display of what's being said here about him. Uh, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's nobody like him. This is whom God has given to us to redeem us and to lead us. This is the gift of God. Ultimately, it surpasses, it it, it, it it outshines any other gift that we could give one another, any other gift we could receive. So just kind of in reflection upon this, what do you do with a gift like this? Well, let's imagine that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning early because you're excited just as much as your kids are to get a gift or, or you're excited to to. Whatever, you you do your morning thing. And somebody you love in your life comes and hands you a box and it's wrapped up nice and pretty or maybe not so nice and pretty depending on who you're married to. And and they give you a gift with your name on it. Now, what do you do with that gift? Well, if it's an envelope because 37% of you want a gift card for whatever reason... Or if it's a box with a package on it, you take it in your hands. You receive the gift, don't you? That's what you do with it. You you take ownership of that gift that's been given to you by taking it in your hands and receiving it as from them. It belongs to you now. Not because you, maybe not because you deserve it. Not because you earned it. But because of their love, their, their thought for you, their care for you, they want to give you something special. So you receive that gift. That's what you do with a normal gift. Now imagine that same scenario takes place and you take that gift and you chunk it in the fireplace because the fire's going out and you need to start the fire back up. And so you take the gift of God that uh, somebody gives you and you just throw it in the fireplace. Now, now what did you do at that point? Well, you didn't receive the gift, did you? What would you do with it? You rejected it. That's what you did. Well, you threw it in the fire. In rejecting the gift, and if you're married and this happens in a marriage relationship, you probably ought to call somebody up and have them come over and mediate between the two of you because you've also rejected your spouse. And it's not going to be a fun Christmas in, in that scenario. I think you know that. Wisdom should tell you anyway. So what do you do with the gift of God. There are some differences in the illustration I gave you, but isn't the first and foremost thing to do with the gift of God receive it? And John tells us as many as received him, gave he the power to become the sons of God. I, I, in one essence, this gift is nothing uh, for us to do in the sense of we don't do anything. It's not like a, like if you buy so much, we'll give you an extra credit and then it would be even better, you know. Like those reward bucks that they give you at the store, it's nothing like that. This is what God has done. You see that, don't you? In verse number six, He says, "For unto us a child is born; to us a son is given. There's nothing for you to do in the sense of earning it, or but it is a gift to be received." It's something that we have to take in in our hands by faith. This is who Jesus is. God sent him into the world. And this is what he's done. And and the Bible says in verse number 6, For unto us, Unto us a child is born. Not necessarily simply for himself and to experience the things that we experience it, but this gift was given to us, for us. Not just the Jews, but for all men, because the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth. This is what God has done in Christ. The natural response, the, the appropriate, the right response is to receive that gift by faith, isn't it? God, who infinitely loves you more than anybody else could love you in your life, who knows much, much more about you and what awaits you, Than anyone else in your life extends to you the gift of salvation, deliverance, joy, and hope through Jesus Christ. And it's to be received by faith. You see, it is a gift given to us. And you ask yourself, can it really be that easy? Don't you sometimes think that? And so you've been saved for a long time and you wonder to yourself, did I really do it right? Was it really that easy? I just want to read a passage of scripture in the New Testament towards that. Chapter number 10 of Romans says this. The word is near you, even the word, uh, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He's, he's arguing to these people that you're not saved by works. It's God's grace and you're saved by faith. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, notice that statement that he made in Romans 9 9 or 10 9. He says, There's a confession with the mouth, but that confession is birthed out of belief in the heart. Those who believe with their heart, God raised him from the dead, confess him as Lord, will be saved. That's a good promise. For the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Notice, for, I'll just read the next verse for you. It's so wonderful. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be Saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord. The gift of God. That gift of hope and joy. Of deliverance and belonging. Of that future expectation of peace. In the presence of God. And with the saints of God. Is given to everyone who calls. Upon the name of the Lord. And because it is so easy. If we're honest. That what's. In some ways, makes it so difficult, and yet I would just press to you that if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is the gift He offers you. And whatever thing goes on in your mind, whatever lie that that perpetuates and keeps Christ and salvation at arm's distance, all of that is, it, it is what it is. It's it's a lie. It's not true. He offers to us belonging and forgiveness and hope and life and joy and deliverance to all those who call upon Him. Well, the option is in rejecting that free gift of salvation, we reject Him. and the end of that, ultimately, as we stand before Him, there will be none who reject Him. In the end in the day of judgment, they will be received by Him. They will get what they want. Separation from God for all eternity. And yet this season, with all the distractions going on in our life, he offers the gift of Christ again to the message of the gospel to all who believe on him, even to all who call upon his name, if he is right to be called the children of God. Are you one of those? Have you found the joy that is found in Jesus Christ by receiving him by faith and much more? There's an old hymn, It says, uh, I will arise and go to Jesus. Uh, How many of you ever heard that? Beautiful hymn. In his arms are 10,000 charms. It's in our hymn book. We'll sing it soon. I'll put it on the list, to-do list. Beautiful hymn, because isn't that the way it is? We come with our guilt and our shame. We come with all of our baggage. And at the cross, we lay it before Jesus and say, I believe, save me, or have mercy upon me, or... uh, uh, and, and cleanse me from my unrighteousness and my unbelief. And and we find not only peace and cleansing from all that, but a whole lot of other cool stuff. The promises of God and the presence of God and the people of God. And, and over and over we could continue on. Well, what do you do with a gift like this where well, you receive it? Is it given to all of us? Well, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is it really that easy? Well, that's really what the Bible says, is not it? The second thing I think for those of you who have received Christ as your Savior and walking in fellowship with Him, and this is my desire for you, This, and, and honestly, the, the whole motivation of this text for this morning is rooted in this reality, that we should rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. I was thinking in the in the revival in Nehemiah and Ezra's time, where they read the law of the Lord and the people were coming and mourning and, and the priests stood up and they said, Don't do that. This is a day where we heard the Lord speak to us, go home and eat and be glad and be joyful. And this is a season and I know there's heavy things going on in our life, there's birds, and I'm gonna tell you just ignore all that stuff. But what I am saying is we need every reminder we can to to rejoice in the gift that God has given to us. Because because it is in that hope and in that joy that we find the endurance to continue on until we see Him face to face. Isn't that true, church? Rejoice in it. Don't be that grouchy Christian who's got to go correct everybody and talk about how pagan this holiday is and people would just do it right. Don't do that. Rejoice in the fact you can drive downtown and see a manger scene. Rejoice in the fact that you see joy and hope. Now, people may not know what that means, but rejoice. Revel in the gift that God has given to us. Rejoice as you eat with your your family tomorrow or this evening or friends or whoever it is around your life that's invited you into the circle. Rejoice in the fact of the fellowship that God has given to us because that's a small glimpse of uh, of the undiminished joy that we'll have in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wouldn't that be a good day? A feasting and rejoicing and maybe even dancing for those of us who are still working out whether that's right or not. (laughs) The third thing I would say, not only rejoice over it, receive it, but there's uh, there's a readjusting this kind of news does for us, doesn't it? As we dwell upon the grace of God that he has done for us and the purpose in delivering us, doesn't it help us revisit where we are in our walk in this life? Kind of let loose of those things that weigh us down, the sins in our life. It's a beautiful time of year to do that as we approach the new year, those sins in our life that are setting us back so that we may walk more closely with our Savior and with one another. And I would say fourthly, just in closing, not only do you to receive it and rejoice over it, readjust where necessary, but we retell it, don't we? What is this all about? Well, it's about the gift of God to us. And that's the message. Maybe we'll hear more about that even this evening with the shepherds. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning we can gather together. Thank you for your mercy. Oh, you are good. You have lavished us with your grace, Lord. An amazing ways we, we see it over and over in our life the experience of your favor towards us. We got most clearly, most definitely, most beautifully we see it in Jesus our Savior being brought into this world, not just to be a baby. And we know that, oh, but to live the life he lived, to die the death he died, to be raised as he was raised, and to be ascended and sitting at your right hand. Thank you for that gift of deliverance and salvation. Thank you for the hope we have in you and the joy that you have given us in Jesus' name. Amen.